Hello and welcome back to the NovPod, a beginner's guide to anaesthetics, hosted by Anesthesia and Air, brought to you in association with the Royal College of Anaesthetists. It's the season finale. It is the season finale. Well, as, as much as it pains me to say it, we're actually going to go out with a bang. We have got a fantastic guest who was willing to donate some time for me and Duncan. What we won't mention is, whilst asking a question to Dr. Donald, I managed to spill an entire coffee over myself, which is a great way to introduce yourself to the president, I think. Yeah, it was quite a spectacular thing. Luckily, this is not a video media podcast, else it would have been probably one of those viral videos. And the next time I saw her, she said, oh, well done, you haven't got anything on your shirt today. <laughs> so, oh, I think there's one way to appear good in the present size and then completely wipe that out afterwards. But we hope this provides you with a bit more thoughts about what to do after your IAC and how to develop yourself and gets you introduced to our very own president, Fiona Donald. Okay, welcome back to the NovPod. We're on the episode Life After the IAC. I'm Owen, one of the anaesthetic registrars in Thames Valley. And always I've got... Your co-host, Duncan. I don't like referring to myself in the third person, but I'm an anaesthetic trainee in North Central London. Yeah, because um, you can't just say, I've got me here I've and my me. mate. Have a <laughs> of here. And today we have the pleasure of having Fiona Donald, the president of the college here. So, hello. Hello, and thanks very much for inviting me today. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Lovely, and I'm glad that we'll be able to get onto the topic of life after the IAC, because it can be a bit of a confusing time, can't it? So hopefully we will be able to clarify some of those points. Absolutely, and I'll try and stretch my memory back to the to my life after being a novice. And what's really useful is we've come up with some really broad questions that should be pretty <laughs> hard to answer as well. So it might feel like you've been vibed from time to time, so uh, if that's okay. That's always good, isn't it? Always good to have that first-hand experience to yeah. be able to draw on when you're advising people. The question we wanted to ask, which I haven't thought of, which is very interesting... We've debated a lot about the title of the podcast, partly because of just drilling it into ourselves. We've landed on the novice podcast or NovPod for short. Do you think we should be moving away from the term novice or do you think that's something that is a useful term to have? It's not a question I'd thought about Mm. very much, to be honest. I mean, the the term novice does describe what's happening for that person. So it allows everyone to know where that person is within their training. I guess you might have to ask the people that are in that situation, really, Mm. whether they find it demeaning, separating. From my point of view, I think it describes where they are quite accurately, so I'd be quite happy to keep it. I don't know what else we'd go with. New anaesthetists? Now it's an important thing to think about in terms of making sure people feel valued and respected. However, unless there is a better term that accurately describes that the team should be alert, that you shouldn't be left alone in theatre, because... There is a huge learning curve to get up before you're safe with pen, pe, pe, pensioners, patients <laughs> who may be pensioners or may not be pensioners. It's here to stay because it's so universally understood. I think the term we should definitely make sure it's novice anaesthetist because you're not a novice to medicine. Yes, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I think you're right that it really is helpful in terms of when you're coordinating knowing what that means for that person so that you you get the right degree of of supervision and uh, don't lump too many responsibilities onto them (laughs) before they're ready. Exactly. And the whole thing of language in medicine is really interesting, I think. Um, I work in obstetrics. There's always a lot of changes in the language in obstetrics. But, um, you know, we've gone from calling people trainees, try not to use that term alone anymore and to talk about anaesthetists in training or postgraduate doctors in training. And I suspect we may move even further away. And certainly the term junior doctor oh, yeah. is very rarely used apart from in terms of the way it has to be used for, for balloting in the um, BMA. So I think it's interesting what you mentioned about language and things like obstetrics. As soon as you mentioned that, it brought me screeching back to my first day on obstetrics and anaesthetics when I got the phone call of my client would like an epidural. And I was so confused. I was, what do you mean client? Oh, there's a, oh, there's a woman in labour. It was just a very bit of a weird mindset shift to be like, okay, you're using one set of language. I'm using another, but it all means the same thing. So that really brings home what language is all about, doesn't it? That we've got to be able to communicate with each other and to understand. But equally, in medicine, where you know the patient is at the centre of everything, we've got to make sure that the, A, the patient understands what we're talking about, but also that they don't feel 
that the language we're using is inappropriate. Mm. Yeah, because um, it's very easy to, for people to nod along and smile and say, yeah, oh, yes, I've understood everything, when actually it's completely overwhelming. And even that goes to being an obvious anaesthetist, isn't it? You suddenly come in and you've got, right, we've got the end title, blah, blah, blah. We've got, the, you know, this special bit of monitoring, your BIS, you've got, you know, all these acronyms and you're going, oh, my God, what is, what is going on? There's a lot of squiggles on a screen. I know roughly what a couple of them are, but... <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think I was talking to Helgi Johansson this morning, who's the vice president, um, about this podcast. And he was saying that he came in to anaesthetics having been a medical registrar. Oh. And so you go from being the person who can do everything mm. to being the person who can do nothing. And that's quite a, a difficult transition. Oh, yeah. Whereas I came into anaesthetics after a, a year, sort of equivalent of foundation years. So I was much more in that normal progression where I was quite happy not to know anything at that point. <laughs> and do you have any key or like vivid memories from your novice period? So different things stick with different people. I mean, it's quite a long time ago now. I certainly remember sitting in one tutorial about ventilators and I'd read a little bit the night before and looked in the book and been very conscientious. And I sat there in the tutorial and just thought, well, I don't know what language they're speaking, but this definitely isn't English because I couldn't understand any of the words that they were using. And I thought, well, how am I ever going to understand anything in anaesthetics? It seems like a completely foreign language to me. You know, after medical school and maybe, you know, your first bit of your first house job, as it was in those days, you kind of understand the words. And obviously you don't know everything, but you understand what people are saying to you. Whereas in anaesthetics, they were putting together sentences where I could probably understand some of the words, but when they put them all together in that order, I had no idea what they meant. That feeling of being quite lost, I remember well. But also, I remember I was in a very small hospital where we had four novice anaesthetists and four consultants. So we were all kind of just paired up with all the different consultants, but you were very supported and never asked to do anything that was beyond what you thought you could do or beyond your competence. Obviously, you were pushed a bit to try and, you know, recognise that your competence yes. was increasing. And I vividly remember the first time I was left alone in a theatre with a patient. I suspect the consultant was just in the anaesthetic room, but I was too scared to turn around. And I was really wondering whether I should turn the vaporizer up a bit, but I didn't know if that would be all right. And I remember thinking also about the drugs in the syringes and how would I ever know how much to draw up and how much to give. Yeah. And all those things seem really weird now. Yeah. It's very odd, isn't it? The learning curve, like we've mentioned many times on this podcast, is bizarrely steep, but also well supported in getting up that steep curve to the point where day one, even the thought of drawing up a drug neat, let alone diluting anything, and then labelling it correctly, within a week you're suddenly you know, doing it automatically almost. That's absolutely true. And I think that brings us to one of the things that it's really important to know about novice training, which is that despite the fact you're not really taking responsibility for anything, it's really tiring mm. because you're just absorbing lots and lots and lots of knowledge that's all completely new to you and trying to assimilate it, as well as being exposed to lots of anaesthetic gases because yeah. of your poor technique of holding a mask <laughs> yeah, on. Yeah. <laughs> if you were to say some things to people who are completing their RAC at the moment, then they're looking up and seeing, oh, this is this quite a lot of work to be done here what would you say that could reassure them so I would say definitely look back to the beginning of your novice period and realize how far you've come because you'll have come mm. an awful long way and you may not quite realize because it'll have been very gradual but also think about talking to your colleagues because there'll be other novices around who'll be in the same position as you about how they feel about what's about to happen because of course once you've got your IAC then you're going to be given a little bit more responsibility and you're going to be asked to start your on calls you need to sort of start preparing for that I think I think most novices will have done quite a lot of work in emergency theatres, so in the CPOD theatres. So they'll have an idea how the CPOD list works, but probably only during the day. They'll have seen the interactions between both the surgeons and the anaesthetists and the patients, but also between the different surgical groups, because, of course, there's always some degree of wondering, you know, which is the case that has the greatest priority. Being able to manage those sort of areas as opposed to just the anaesthetic are things that you'll need to think about for when you start your on-call. Now, of course, you will have people to refer to when you start your on-call. Yeah. So you'll have probably another core trainee and some higher specialist trainees as well as consultants who will be working with you when you start your on-call. So don't be afraid to talk to them. They're not going to think that you're 
awful because you have to ask them questions. Everyone expects everyone to ask questions. And I think that's one of the good things about anaesthetics, that we would much rather that people ask questions rather than just plough on and do what they think is the right thing and then end up needing to be rescued. I always think that those sort of the soft skills that you need around your whole practice, but possibly on call in particular, are the more difficult things to acquire. So you should be starting to think about those at the moment. And then also just, as we've mentioned, you know, it's tiring being in training in, in anaesthetics and starting your own calls is going to be a whole different level of tiredness, I suspect, because you're likely to be working nights, obviously, at some points, and those can be pretty tiring. So make sure that you get your sleep routines worked out and think about how you're going to manage your periods before and after on call. And then just keep acquiring information, really. The good thing about anaesthetics is that you get a lot of one-to-one teaching. Each time you're in theatre, you acquire more knowledge, not just about the anaesthetics, but about the surgical side of things as well. So each time you see an operation, you get to understand the requirements for that particular operation. So what level of monitoring do you need? My rule is always, if I've thought about putting an A-line in, then I'm going to put an A-line in because, you, you know, you can never really go wrong, can you? Well, I'm sure you can. Yeah. <laughs> you haven't seen Duncan's yeah. A-lines. No, yeah, when, it's, when it's half an hour in and then the surgeons are knocking on the window. If you think you should do it, you probably should do it. But yeah. whilst you're getting that frame of reference, I had a low bar for calling for help or speaking mm. to colleagues. I remember I was mentored by uh, two trainees in Birmingham a year ahead of me, but I thought they were like years ahead of me for their wealth mm. of experience they brought in when they would say, maybe don't do a central line on the ward, Owen. That's yeah. not, that's <laughs> yeah, a, yeah. Those are really good relationships within the world of anesthesia, so please do use them. Do you have any reflections on that, Duncan? Like you said, looking back, I think that's a great piece of advice, actually. Looking back and seeing how far you've come in that IAC period is quite a good way to reaffirm that you are learning and you have come from a long way. I think there is almost like a second learning curve with the soft skills and the management of CPOD and also managing a bleep because I've... I have to say, the anaesthetic bleep is one of the biggest roulette wheels you will ever have. It can be anything. And a lot of the times people, if they don't know who to call, they will call an anaesthetist. You don't just need to ask for help clinically. If you have a management or a soft skill question, then definitely ask it because you will learn from people's experiences, both clinically and non-clinically, as to, oh, well, I've had a similar problem before, actually, and this is how we solved it. 99% of the time, that will be the way to solve it yourself. And it will lock that in for future challenges because there will be more future challenges particularly if you're on recurrently on seapod theater overnight absolutely and i i remember very well when i was in my first anesthetic sho job the surgeons rang me up and said they wanted to do a laparotomy the next morning and they wanted to start at six o'clock in the morning and i thought "Hmm, well that seems early but you know i suppose if that's what the surgeons want to do then i guess that's what we'll have to do so i was i rang my senior registrar who was at home and said by the way you know tomorrow morning um the surgeons want to do a laparotomy and they want to start at six o'clock and i think you can probably imagine what the senior registrar said about that <laughs> so we didn't start at six o'clock in the morning and it's just it's just things like that that you just you need to get your frame of reference for really because you, you just have no idea really how the system truly works i agree and i agree about the bleep as well one of the things that's really important to remember is that if somebody bleeps you whilst it's can be a little bit annoying sometimes Mm. if the request is a bit trivial or not in your area of responsibility. They're probably calling because they don't know what else to do Mm. or they've tried somebody else and they haven't got a response. Whenever I am carrying the coordinating bleep, I try to be nice and polite and helpful. I know it's difficult sometimes, particularly in the middle of the night, but just, you know, just try to remember that that person is probably a little bit distressed as well. So um, and respond in in kind. The management skills are definitely some of the the more difficult ones to get your head around. Definitely, definitely. And I think particularly, as you said, it's often, depending on where you work, there will be these calls uh, from a very junior member of staff, which is not necessarily the appropriate member of staff who should be calling as you said, the civility and also just that question, how can I help, can often change the way they then ask you for help and it can clarify in their mind, it's like, oh no, what am I actually calling for? This is the issue. And often it steers the conversation a bit better, I think. We've touched on the end of the IAC and coming onto the on-call rotor. I sort of felt a little bit lost after my AC. So I patted myself on the back enough to say, oh, well done, I've got this and now I'm on call. I wasn't really sure because I, I didn't want to start my exams yet, but I wasn't really sure what I was doing in my first year. Do you have any advice for what people should be trying to achieve within their first year of anaesthetics? 
so now in your core training, you've either got you know, three years if you're doing uh, core anesthetics or four years if you're doing ACCS. You've got a bit more time to think about things. And so I don't think it's time to immediately start thinking about your exam. You will inevitably pick up knowledge that is relevant to your exam and that you will use later on. And I always think that the knowledge that you acquire and apply in your everyday practice that becomes embedded is easier to recall in an exam and much more useful to you than anything you cram in the last five minutes, although everyone will have a story about mm. the question they got right because of the information they crammed. Don't make the exam your first priority at this point, although obviously everybody's different and some people will absolutely want to just head off and do that. I think the thing you want to do now is to consolidate your clinical experience and you want to get as much time in theatre as you can, because as we know, Every patient is different and the same operation and the same anaesthetic in a different patient will be different each time. And I read something the other day about anaesthetics, how it is a science, but it's also an art. Mm. And sometimes you try and adapt somebody else's anaesthetic technique and it just doesn't work the same way in your hands. That speaks to the artistry of anaesthetics. So see as much as you can, do as much as you can and take advice from as many people as you can so that you're thereby consolidating your experience. The person that we've sort of not talked about yet who can really help you during this period is your educational supervisor. Mm -hmm. So obviously they've been with you from the beginning and they know what's been going on during your novice period and how you've got to the IAC. Because that's the other thing to say about the IAC. People will get to it at different speeds mm -hmm. and that's no criticism of anybody. It's just the way people are. We're all different. Your educational supervisor will know all about that. They'll know your strengths and weaknesses, your worries, your concerns. They will be very helpful in terms of helping to guide you through the next part of your training. I think it's just as a bit of a note in medicine we see each other as a we sometimes see as a conveyor belt and then when it it's not going on the conveyor belt there's automatically being a failure however if uh, Duncan who did a three-month placement in anesthetics um, and myself who did a one-day taste a day before I uh, became an anesthetic SHO if we were achieving our IAC at the same time by default by three months, there then hasn't been an individualistic learning progress check. Don't feel as if this is you failing. This is you having an individualised plan for when you are safe for you and the patients, really. Do you have any reflections of what Fiona's just said about what we're to achieve in our first year of anaesthesia? I agree. The transition period from the IAC to the on-calls is very important. And my first on-calls were a set of four nights. And that was quite scary. But I think by that time, you've met a lot of the people you're going to be working with. And then I was lucky enough to be paired with one regular registrar who kind of took me under his wing. And I think that's, as you said, you pick up things that you like from certain people's practice. And yes, one day you will try and emulate it and it will not go quite as smooth as you would hope it to be. But then you seek that person out and feedback and say, oh, I tried this. It didn't quite work. And they said, OK, well, talk me through what you did. And ah, maybe there's a key point that you'd missed. But I also really liked your point about your educational supervisor. I definitely underutilized my educational supervisor. They were lovely in my, in my CT one year. And I didn't quite meet with them as regularly as I probably should have done. Because particularly in larger anesthetic departments, you may end up not actually working with them one on one. And that doesn't necessarily mean they can't be really helpful to you. Because they will be talking to their colleagues and their co colleagues will be talking to them about you not in a disparaging way, in a progress way. And I remember everyone being really enthusiastic and they would enjoy doing that. There is a lot of things happening in the background, so it is important to keep regularly checking in with your supervisor. And I think particularly as we don't work with our colleagues directly so much and it's hard to benchmark how we're doing versus, you know, our other colleague who's not had, you know, who has had an anaesthetic experience before and they've achieved their IAC maybe before you, because it can be quite intimidating. I think that, that's quite a tricky concept to go around. I think you're right. So sort of benchmarking yourself against your colleagues is both useful and not useful at yeah. the same time, really, isn't it? I mean, it is quite nice to know because we're all a little bit competitive mm -hmm. and we want to know how well we're doing compared to everybody else. But equally, as I said before, you know, we all progress at different rates and you'll have had different opportunities as well. So keep in touch with your group of mates who are doing the novice period with you partly because it'll be a good support group but also just as I said before reflect back on your own progress to see how you're doing and talk to your educational supervisor and to to the consultants that you're working with I think and the other thing to say about when you when you move on from being a novice is don't get downhearted if you have a little bit of forward progress and then and then things go back a bit and then they go forward a bit and then they go back a bit 
every time I give an anaesthetic and if I were to miss the venflon, which I do every now and again, I think to myself, well, I've been an anaesthetist for 40 years nearly now. And surely one of the skills I should have perfected and never mess up is putting in venflons because otherwise, what is the point? <laughs> but it just happens, doesn't it? You yeah, know, these exactly. things happen. And I think you, you will find, particularly at the start of your career, that you do have these little surges where you, you, know, you have a row of intubations or central lines or arterial lines or anything that goes really, really well. And then you have a whole row where it doesn't go quite so well. And then you pick up again. So, you know, don't worry about that. It happens yeah. to everyone. I think there's just definitely a skill in learning to forgive yourself for the yeah. procedural things. I remember when I was doing my IAOC, so learning to do the obstetric side of things, learning how to put an epidural in was, first of all, terrifying because you've got this giant needle you're inserting into someone's back who's potentially writhing around in pain. But also just I really struggled with the whole tactile learning part of it. Everyone's saying like, oh, you know, once you're in this far, it feels like butter. And I was just going, I have no idea what that means. I got really frustrated with myself. It's such a procedural specialty. There are days where even consultant anaesthetists will miss venflons, but you have to just manage yourself, make sure you don't get task fixated. I often end up, particularly now doing a bit more solo lists, I say to the ODP, start the timer. If I'm getting too task fixated, you get the ultrasound and then you give me a poke. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And, and anaesthetics is a task-orientated specialty in some ways, and we have a lot of technical skills that we need to learn. But equally, one of the things about being a doctor is that you have to learn how to apply those techniques and tasks that you're doing. And once you've learned to intubate, the skill it is in knowing when to intubate and when not to intubate. And equally, as we talked about earlier with arterial lines, when do you need one, when do you not need one? So Whilst it's really important to be skilled at the technical aspects of it, what your role as a doctor is on top of that is to make those judgments. And those are the sorts of things that you will go on to learn throughout your career. But that'll be what you'll be starting to look at more as you move beyond your novice period and into that first year of training. Absolutely. Mentioning training, very good segue into, you know, we've talked about some of the challenges of the IAC, the challenges of your first year on call. What do you think are some of the big challenges? I mean, there are many, obviously, stuff in the media at the moment with junior doctor strikes. What are the big challenges facing anaesthetists in training at the moment, do you think? Imagine you probably have a lot more foresight than we do being in president of the Royal College. Is there anything that comes to your mind in a kind of general sense and then also in the kind of looking to the future in five, ten years' time? So I think, obviously, quite a lot of the challenges have been exacerbated by COVID, but they were already there. We know that in anaesthetics, it's a weird specialty because we're always the biggest departments in the hospital, which has pros and cons. But equally, you work alone a lot of the time. It can be a bit lonely, I think, at times. And you need to make sure that you've got those relationships set up so that you, that you have got people that you can talk to, um, both within the department and outside the department. There's some obviously well-publicised work on fatigue within anaesthesia and the effect that that can have. Obviously, the fatigue group have looked at ways to mitigate against that. And certainly when I'm coordinating in our trust, we always make sure that in the morning we talk to the team who are going off duty to make sure that they're all OK to get home. And, you know, if they're driving, that they've had enough rest. Fatigue can be a big thing. We talked about that for novice trainees because of the new and exciting and confusing world of anaesthesia. But it applies to all of us, I think. We know that from the GMC survey that anaesthesia is one of the specialties that suffers from quite high levels of stress and burnout. And that, as I said, has been made worse through COVID. So it's sort of recognised recognising the possibility of that in yourself I think and also in other people and making sure that you talk to people and you make other people talk to you because it's when we don't talk to people that these things can get out of hand and I think the exam is the hurdle for a lot of people as we mentioned the subject matter in anaesthesia is different to other parts of medicine some of it is not stuff that we learn about in medical schools, a whole new syllabus that we have to learn. We're in the middle of reviewing the exams and making changes to the exams to try and make that assessment burden more proportionate. But I think inevitably the exam still will be challenging because of the, the stuff that you do have to know. All those things mean that whilst it's, a, from my point of view, a really enjoyable specialty, that there are just key things to look out for within it. You could become a little bit isolated and subject to, to stress and or burnout. That's made worse, as I've said, by the exam. And then there's the current problem with getting higher specialist training jobs, which we're hoping will work its way through. And also we're working on by trying to get more training posts from the government. 
Out of interest, because you mentioned stress quite a bit, how do you decompress after like a stressful day or a stressful few shifts? What do you like to do? Good question. I um, I like being out in the outdoors, so I'm really lucky where I live in Bristol. I've got lots of green space near me, so I can just get out and either have a little... I call it a run around the downs, but I think that might be stretching the word run quite a bit. Or I get out on my bike or in the garden or do some art or something like that. Something that will occupy your brain, but in a completely different way to the way in which you've been using it up to now. Those are the sorts of things that I would tend to use for de-stressing myself. I think like going outside, being in the green as well, unless it's, you know, high pitch hay fever season and you're very allergic, which unfortunately will happen to me at the weekend. I think that's a very important skill to have as well, isn't it? Because Owen, we've talked about this in some of the other episodes of, you know, how we decompress. And I think partly from doing sport together before, we're very highly competitive. But actually, like you said, occupying your brain in a different way, like doing art. I've tried to revive my quite poor drumming career of late. I mean, I'm not a very good drummer, but it's a very good way to de-stress. It's like you said, it's occupying yourself in a different way. And my excuse is that it's learning how to improve my coordination for anaesthetic procedures. I'm sure your family are really keen on that. <laughs> no, well, I've had to change to an electronic drum kit after moving in with my wife. Probably for the best. I do rowing and actually that's not actually the de-stressing event that I thought it was going to be. It actually adds on more stress. Mm-hmm. So I've actually recently started knitting because I realised I was getting to nine o'clock and I didn't want to go and do a one hour erg but I did want to use something that occupied my mind and I've created a wondrous amount of truly monstrous scarfs for my aunties and uncles. I thought that when you used the Irish flag when you made for your dad was actually very fetching. How and when do you think the people after their IEC should approach exams? You've mentioned that it would be good to consolidate your learning rather than going straight into them. One of the reasons for the changes to the curriculum, which I know are are not universally popular, was because we know that quite a lot of people weren't able to complete everything they needed to complete by the end of their second year of core training. And for the most part, that was the exam. You've now got, obviously, three years to complete the exam. So I think don't rush into it. Make sure you're well prepared. It is obviously an expensive thing to undertake. So you want to do it as few times as possible. What I would say is probably start as you say, just getting some knowledge under your belt through speaking to people in theatre about you know the theory behind anaesthesia as you're getting through your first year and then probably in your second year start thinking more seriously about applying yourself to revising for the exam. Because of course the exam syllabus is based on everything that you're going to be doing in your first three years. So it's good to have done as much of that as possible before you actually sit the exam. But there again, you want to leave yourself a bit of leeway so that you manage to pass the exam before you you finish your core training or stage one training. I think on average I would say to people start thinking about the exam at the beginning of your second year so that you can start planning your revision and when you would like to take the exam because it it does need to fit into your other life priorities. Absolutely. I think a really important thing for people to do is when thinking about it is it can be a bit of a overload of information but asking people how they prepared there are many ways to revise i think particularly for the different techniques for the different exams so for the written versus the vibe some people find that actually both together works very well i was more of a slow and steady wins the race and sort of did one kind of went right okay sat down a bit decompressed and then started ramping up for the second asking people for how they approached it the time frames they used being biased because Owen and I revised together for the final exams last year having a support network while you do it whilst not being pressured by your peers who are sitting it very early yeah, no, that's right. And I, I've done a lot of practice with people who are doing exams over the years that I've been a consultant. And I've definitely seen some really supportive groups of people doing the exam together. And I think that really helps just because there are always things you want to ask people and just, you know, you sort of think, oh, my goodness, am I weird to be thinking this? Mm. And then you talk to somebody else and they're thinking exactly the same thing. Now, there are so many different resources yeah, for yeah. revising for exams as well, aren't there? So 
it used to be just books and now you've, you've got videos, you've got podcasts, you've got other technologies that I don't even know about <laughs> that can help you with the exams. But I do think peer support is really important. Yeah. Just use every opportunity in theatre to mm. with a consultant or, or other anaesthetist to just ask some questions or get them to ask you some questions um, if you can bear it. Yeah. Don't be afraid to do that because you might think, oh no, they might think less of me because I don't know the exact physics of how people lose heat, for example. But actually, that is utilising the time you have during your working day, and that will help reduce the burden on you doing it during your private time, really. The other thing I would mention, a bit like the IAC, is everyone gets through their exams at different rates. Yeah, a reassurance, but also something quite intimidating. It's something I was told by one of the senior registrars I worked with as a CT1 when I was ramping myself up ready to do the, the primary MCQ. They said... Like nearly everyone will fail at one point in the exams you do, which at first I was like, oh, that's you know quite reassuring. You know, it's a tough thing. You know, it's not the end of the world. And then later on, it warped in my mind into that, oh my god, I haven't failed the first part, so I'm definitely going to fail the second part. So it can be quite a. You need to have the ability to step back and, like you said, have a support network. Take things at your own time. Everyone's individual. Find your resources that work. Find time to decompress, and particularly yeah. like balancing a full time rotor with an exam it is challenging we are lucky in that we have the unique ability to be one-on-one with a consultant who can impart a lot of knowledge to you you shouldn't burn yourself out doing that i think you're right and it's important to give yourself enough time to revise for the exam but equally you probably don't want to stretch it out over too long a period because then it becomes this overwhelming thing in your life all the time you've said many times before everybody works differently just try and recognize your learning style and how you would Want to do things and don't be pressurised by anybody else really. Not only just with regards to exams but in general with career advice and development. How can the Royal College support trainees particularly in their first couple of years of anaesthetic training and beyond? Obviously we've got the exam courses so that is a help with the exam side of things. There are the e-learning resources as well available for everyone to look at and the exam pages on the website that give you some useful tips. I think in terms of your general career, obviously we have events at the college. People will, I'm sure, find interesting from that point of view. The college tutors, the college tutors are appointed by the college and help to support both the educational supervisors and the trainees within departments. In terms of well-being and support for well-being, we've sort of decided that there's no point in duplicating everything. And so we're working with the association really on that. They have a mentoring system that they've set up recently. We signpost to resources working together with the association. We're also, I don't know if this is directly relevant, but we're working with the Widening Participation in Medicine group to set up a system of mentoring for people from more underprivileged and diverse backgrounds who might want to come into anaesthetics, point them towards resources and the ways they might find their way into anaesthetics because we're not a particularly diverse or inclusive specialty, which always comes as a surprise to me because I always Mm. think of us as, as very inclusive, but we could do a lot better. There's some really friendly people who work here who aren't anaesthetists and whenever I've called up with a query, it's been sorted very quickly Mm. if you are a bit lost with your llp and you have to change things yes it's very frustrating but but bear in mind there's a really nice human at at the end of the phone or the end of the email trying to help you Mm. but do go and ask them and they will try and assist you in what they can the same with exams and events with the uh, dyslexia thing i had to email in the exams team to make sure i got extra reading time and they always were very helpful with that no, that's absolutely true. And I think, yeah, the, the college staff don't get enough of a, we don't big them up enough, actually. They're incredibly helpful. I mean, going back to the LLP, the LLP is provided as part of your membership of the college and does help you, obviously, to track your progress through your training and for your supervisors to be able to see that as well. I take your point entirely about the staff being very responsive. They've been working really hard on getting the email response times down. When you do need to call the college, you do get a response pretty quickly. I think they go out of their way to be helpful. I was thinking about other ways that the college supports us, and it's not always obvious about what the college actually does. But we don't just do education and training, we do standards as well. So if you think about the guidelines for provision of anaesthetic services or the anaesthesia clinical standards accreditation system, those things that probably happen in the background of most people's lives, particularly when you're an anaesthetist in training, but they set the standards that the departments work to 
and that they can then ask their trusts to work to standards for rest facilities, standards for on-call frequency and mm. way it's done that's recommended. I mean, that's set by other people, but the way it's laid out is is part of these standards that we set. And we set, you know, the fact that you have to have a skilled assistant to help you in anaesthetics. All these sorts of things come into those standards. That's one of the really big parts of the work of the college through its research and then its quality improvement activity and then setting those standards for the profession. If the Royal College wasn't here, then that there may not be such an assurance nationally. Our working conditions and the safety and quality of the, the service that we can provide probably would be much lower. As you say, it's the things that go in the background, which unless you actively get involved with part of that, and I know there's a big move, uh, like you mentioned, with the AXA, particularly in the trust I just rotated from, there's a big move to get trainees involved with that which i think is great you know moving beyond the standard setting and everything you know, we've got a policy team here a small policy team who do a lot of work as i was mentioning earlier you know in terms of trying to get more training posts that lobbying work is backed up by the policy team that we have here and the communications team who put out all our tweets and the various messages mm. that we want to get out to politicians and arrange for us to talk to the media on behalf of the specialty and those sorts of things just help to keep what we want to say in the minds of the media and the politicians so that eventually we do end up succeeding in getting the extra train places that we've had over the last three years and hopefully that we'll be able to continue with that. I think it's a hard thing to conceptualise as a core trainee and novice when you're thinking about the exams and then the application. How can you explore your further interests within anaesthesia because we've as a novice it's brand new first day of school and then you learn starting to walk and then run a little bit then you suddenly come across this thing of there is so much and there are so many specialties because I know yourself your interests are obstetrics and perioperative care yeah I think first it would be interesting to hear when you realize or how you realize that you like those things and then also how junior anaesthetists can further explore interests whilst they're in training I all through medical school and then through my whole medical training I've liked Everything, really. At medical school, I couldn't really decide what specialty I wanted mm. to do because every time I started doing something else, I thought, oh, well, this is really <laughs> this is really good. And I was a bit like that in anaesthetics. And so I didn't really decide to be an obstetric anaesthetist until quite late on in my career. And then this was in the days when we still had registrar and senior registrar training. I did a sort of advanced obstetric module in my time as a senior registrar. But at that point, I was still toying with the idea of paediatric anaesthesia or even possibly intensive care medicine, but uh, I <laughs> soon, uh, soon got over that. I think it is a bit more difficult now because training was a bit more fluid when I was doing it. And there will always be people who, and I always remember a girl who I worked with who had always wanted to be a paediatric intensivist and that was what she wanted to do and that was what she was going to do and that's what she did. Other people are much less certain what they want to do. They may actually be more certain about where they want to work and who they want to work with and actually what specific specialty they want to do. I mean, obviously, what they want to do will probably be centred around what's done in that hospital that they want to be in, but they may not have a specific subspecialty that they want to work in. And you do need to keep up your generalist skills because most people are going to be taking part as, when they finally become a consultant or move into an SES post, if that's what they would like to do, then they're going to be part of a sort of undifferentiated on-call where they'll see lots of different types of patients coming in. So you need to keep your generalist skills going. You need to talk to people who are doing some of these specialist areas and ask them about what it entails and what they like about it so you can get an idea. And then if you do do a, a particular area and think, yeah, you might want to specialise in that, then there's the special interest area and parts of your higher specialist training, which you can then move into. But I think you need to plan those yeah. a fair way in advance these days and talk to your college tutor and your training programme director to make sure that you're going to be able to move into that area. So you do have to be, you have to be quite organised for some of the specialist areas I think so it's a good idea not to bury your head in the sand for too long if you if you can help it yeah to be honest I mean you can always go away post CCT and do some training elsewhere in either in another country or in another part of this country to get specialist experience and also don't underestimate how much movement occurs once you're in your definitive role very few people I would say are doing exactly the same job plan 
10, 20 years into their career as they were when they mm. first started. And sometimes new specialties open up. I remember when bariatric anaesthesia first became a thing and I started doing a bit of that. And, you know, you never really know what's going to happen. Yeah. So don't close too many doors and don't worry if you if you haven't pinned yourself down to that one thing you're really fascinated by. And I do think, going back to the whole lifestyle thing, that knowing where you want to be and who you want to be with is probably as important mm. as knowing exactly what subspecialty you want to be in. I'm very interesting to hear because I think it's it can be quite intimidating when you're working with peers who are, you know, they were like, right, I want to do cardiac. And I remember a few years ago I was working with someone, I think they were just post-core training, working as a clinical fellow, and they almost running into theatres to do TOEs to like get up their numbers and I was like oh my god they really want to do this I don't know what I want to do yet like you said talking to people and I think I had a reassuring conversation with the excellent consultant I worked with at Stanmore last year who you know said look I started as a cardiac anaesthetist and I thought that's what I want to do that's always where I was going to be and they've ended up being one of the main consultants who does recurrent pediatric lists in an orthopedic specialty hospital there is less pigeonholing than we think that goes on but it's tricky to see that as a trainee where you're constantly particularly when you're rotating to hospitals in order to do a certain specialty yeah and I think the other thing to remember is that although training seems endless it is actually quite a small proportion of Mm. your career and don't get too fixated on it there are milestones and goals you have to achieve when you're training in order to get your CCT and to be able to move on or to get to the point where you want to move into a specialist post so so there are things you have to do but don't worry too much if you haven't done everything by the time you get to be in your definitive post there will always be opportunities for you to do other things and to move into other areas. Having said that, if, like the person I was talking about earlier, you decide you want to be a paediatric intensivist, then you probably do have to think about that a little bit (laughs) beforehand in order to get the specific areas of training that you need. And and we were were talking about this earlier, weren't we, in terms of hobbies? You know, Mm. some people have got that one hobby, that absolute passion that rules their life, do or die, whereas for most of us, We've got lots of things that we enjoy doing and there isn't really one that outweighs all the others. And a lot of people are like that in anaesthetics as well. I think, you know, we enjoy lots of different areas, but we have maybe one area that we concentrate on a little bit more. I'd say think about it and make plans for a special interest area in advance so that you know roughly which area you want to go into. But don't worry, that's going to pigeonhole you for the rest of your life. There are always opportunities in anaesthetics. And that's one of the brilliant things about anaesthetics, isn't it, as a career, that you can do lots of different things. Yeah. And also I think there's so much is evolving. Over the last five, ten years, the perioperative care has become a really big hot topic and focus and then as you said with the rise of bariatric anesthesia thinking to the future i could conceptualize that with you know advancing age and things whether there would be a specialist in almost geriatric anesthesia although that's kind of general I think, well, yes. I mean, I think there are, you know, there definitely are people who specialise in anaesthesia for the frail and elderly. So that's definitely a thing. Interventional radiology, robotic surgery, anaesthesia, robotic surgery, all these things that grown over the years. So there there will definitely be, you know, what is AI going to come up with? Oh, crikey. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it's interesting what you're saying earlier is that, you know, we're, you know, hopefully going to be robust against, you know, chat GPT taking over our anaesthetics, but you never know. I'm sure there'll be programs that will be able to deliver an anaesthetic. Yeah. But there's going to be a place for humans as well, yeah, I'm sure. Definitely, definitely. I really like that as a message is that you can pivot the skills you learn being, let's say, doing a obstetric higher fellowship, it is very useful that you can then bring to another area and maybe even improve that other area because you've picked up those specific skills and Throughout my journey, I've changed from wanting to be a paediatric anaesthetist to an obstetric anaesthetist to now maybe even a DGH doing everything anaesthetist. And it's a, a journey. And I think you only get that from more information. And also asking those around you, your social support network, when I come home from a shift, what do you think I get the most out of? I recently discovered my social support network notices that I take a longer time to recover from night shifts when I'm doing intensive care, which is bringing in whether or not I think do that as a higher specialty. So do ask those around you for the reflections of how and why the job affects you. Yeah, definitely. Actually, that's a, I think an undertapped resource is, God, that's something very formal, you know, your partners, your close friends. I, a while ago, was coming back from work feeling very tired, doing a lot of very busy 
obstetric on calls, which was an oddity for the hospital. I, I got dubbed a, a certain sort of magnet during those shifts. Yet my other half actually said, look, well, actually, I noticed you've come back and yes, you've been tired, but actually you've been almost buzzing. And I didn't even realise that. So I think that's a very interesting. You have the formal resources and you can explore. You've got your colleagues at work, but also those those around you will notice patterns of your behaviour and whether it's, you know, your enthusiasm for a certain thing and also a well as a well-being thing as well. To round up our conversation, do you have any top survival tips for those novices listening? And I know, again, we're, we're hitting with very broad questions yeah. and then asking for some very minutiae specifics. But if we were to say in two minutes, what would you say is your uh, top survival tips for novices? So we've covered some of them already, really. I think recognise that as a novice and going into your first year of anaesthesia and your first on calls, you are going to be exhausted. Mm. It is going to be physically and mentally exhausting. And so you may find there are points where you just think, oh, I really can't. I'm not sure I've chosen the right career here. I definitely had periods like that. Don't forget to talk to other people about how you're feeling get plenty of rest. And then think about why you started. You know, sometimes it's quite difficult when you're in the middle of something to think about what made you start this job and think about things you enjoy in it. Keep your support network around you, your your group of co-novices, because I think you'll all be having similar experiences. And I would say just one of the things that I really like about anaesthetics and is this counterintuitive bit of anaesthetics. Everybody says to anaesthetists, well, you don't need any communication skills or interactive skills because all your patients are asleep. Well, A, as an obstetric anaesthetist, no. And B, <laughs> I think because we have to gain our patients' trust in such a short interaction and we have to gain quite a lot of trust because of what we're going to do to them, I think we need really good communication skills and good interpersonal skills. And actually talking to the patients is one of the things that I really enjoy about anaesthetics. And so I think remember the reasons why you enjoy what you're doing and hold on to those at the times when you've, you know, it's five o'clock in the morning and the bleep's gone off again and you, you were just thinking that you might be able to lie down for five yeah. minutes and now suddenly you've got to go and do X, Y or Z. You know, that's not great and our bodies are just not designed to like doing that sort of thing so just accept that once you've had a bit of a rest think about why you went into anaesthetics in the first place that will help to buoy you up it won't be everything but it will <laughs> it will help i think i think you end up becoming the biggest advocate for the patient whilst they're under your care you go from this completely unknown entity where people have maybe seen the odd medical program which shows us kind of plopping a mask on someone's face and suddenly the surgery is magically done, to then you're the one saying, I'm going to look after you as you're anaesthetising them, potentially in an emergency. It's a real challenge getting that, and it's another soft skill we talked about, isn't it? You pick up patter from people, particularly those consultants and seniors you really look up to and you work with a lot, and it all becomes this process of trying to, you know, make that patient who's terrified of being wheeled into the anaesthetic room to, you know, you're almost in an elective setting, particularly trying to make them laugh. I almost always always try to do that. It's a very particular skill that you have. And also I think it's a really exciting specialty and having that privilege of looking after patients in such a specific manner, one-to-one, is really rewarding. Last question then. What's your one thing you do to build trust with patients quickly? Oh, that's a good one. Or what have you seen and you're like, no, don't do that, don't do that, please, please don't do that. <laughs> I don't think it is one thing. Mm. I think it's a whole manner, isn't it? You have to be able to inspire confidence in your patient. And the only way you can do that is by really being an expert, isn't it? And so you do need to keep honing your skills, your soft skills and your technical skills and your knowledge. Keep learning, keep inquisitive and talk to the patients. Don't patronise your patients. Mm. They are, after all, human beings as well. <laughs> you know. So talk to them in the way that you would talk to anyone, really, I think, and be honest with them. I think that's really mm. important. And then as we, we talked about language earlier, didn't we, and how the importance of language and there's lots and lots of work around the way you use language can influence the patient's experience in terms of using you know, words like, so ridiculous example is the one about putting in a cannula. Mm. If you say when you put the local anaesthetic in there that it's going to sting, that sort of prepares the patient for pain rather than saying this is going to numb, I'm just going to do this to numb this or you know, 
words to that effect, has a much more positive effect. So I think it's, it's, it's never one single thing. It's bringing all your skills together to inspire confidence in your, in your patient in the way you deal with them. And I remember I was talking to somebody again about language and about what you say to patients as they're drifting off to sleep. Somebody was asking me, so do you get them to count? And I said, well, I, I don't really. They'd heard this rumour that everyone was asked to count backwards from 10. Yeah. <laughs> I said, no, I don't do that. I said, I just really don't say anything in particular. I just murmur stuff in a kind of reassuring tone. Mm. And apparently I was talking to somebody who was giving a lecture and that's the sort of thing you need to do. It's that it's the tone of your voice at that point that's important. So it's just picking up those skills about how to put people at their ease, really. And on that, actually, one of the top tips that I discovered when I was a patient is don't stand over people because you're creating a power dynamic to so get down level, especially when you're doing peds as well. Um, that, and that can be quite fun depending on the level there are if they're playing on the floor. Um, <laughs> it's one of those things that I think helps them realise that you're you're not dictating to them and that this is a relationship you're building. Yeah, I think as well, I, if there is that terrified patient, having a, almost a, a question or two in the bank of, that's a real distractor can be very useful. One of... The things I developed, particularly when I was working in Arsenal, which did a lot of sort of teenage surgery for scoliosis, was I asked them, oh, so, you know, what year are you in? A you know, school year? Oh, you're doing your GCSEs. Can you guess what GCSEs I did? Because there's a curveball one of I did GCSE dance. And that always com- takes the anxiety and turns it into almost like confused happiness. And then I go, OK, right, off to sleep now. <laughs> so that always tends to just those curveball questions or those distractors can like really set people at ease, I think. Thank you very much to Dr. Fiona Donald for donating her time to us to give us an excellent final episode of the podcast. We would like to just end on a few final thank yous to the college team, Natasha, Duncan, who have been instrumental in getting us here to the content. Thank you to Ian. Thank you to our, Ian. Our for AV support. AV for support. Hours of dealing with our frustrations and tears. Thank you for Joe Lipson for um, sponsoring us and looking after us. And captaining novices everywhere. And captaining novices everywhere. And And lastly, thank you to you. Thank you for listening, being part of the journey and investing your time. And hopefully we have improved a little bit of your novice experience and we'd like to improve it further. So we'll ask your via college tutors, we'll ask for some feedback and try to work out how we can make this the optimal experience for you. We would like to just leave you with probably a some top tips that we started out with. Firstly, we know this is a tiring time. Take care of yourself and enjoy it. It is one of those times that you will be an active learner in an apprenticeship model. And yeah, that is challenging, but enjoy it. We really hope you do. I echo Owen's thoughts there. I think the key thing is you're not alone. Everyone's gone through this before. If you need help, there's plenty of help around you. You just need to ask someone. And be kind. Be kind be to everyone you work with. Be kind and yourself. To, uh, to yourself, especially yourself. Yeah. So, nov, nov, nov. Pop, pop, pod. And that's bye for now. <laughs>